out on you. Excuse me one second. Will you take me off mute? Got it? All right, thanks. All right. Good morning. Can you hear me in here? Yes. No, I'm, on, I'm not coming through. I don't know. I heard myself in there. Did you hear me in there? It could be the back of a speaker. I don't know who's turning it off. Keep talking. Can you hear me? Raise your hand when you hear me. Okay. All right, let's, let's do gather up. Uh, we've got a... I've got a you know, standalone lesson today, and I don't know if I'll get through it, and I don't like running, but I'm kind of long-winded, so... All right, let me just open in prayer. Lord God, we just... Uh, we're thankful that we can come and gather in a place of worship, Lord, and lift you up. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would go before and would open our hearts and open our minds, Lord, that we would receive what you have for us, Lord, that it would fill us, that it would give us uh, energy and just give us your life. In Jesus Christ, amen. So this morning, I'd like to begin by looking at a familiar passage in the gospel of Luke chapter 24, and it's going to run from verses 13 to 48. I'm sure you all know the story about the post-resurrected Jesus. He comes upon two of his followers, and uh, they're walking to Emmaus. They're discussing things about Jesus and the events around his crucifixion. And it's pretty evident that they, they're disappointed and they're frustrated and even somewhat hopeless. After they relate their discussion back to Jesus, he says these words to him in Luke 24, verses uh, 25 through 27. He says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them, the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. Of course, he means the Old Testament. Later, they recognize Jesus when they're sitting at the dinner table breaking bread, and he kind of vanishes from them. Next, they hurry to find the 11 disciples who are also gathered together in a room, and they're discussing the possibility that Jesus had risen and that he was even seen by Simon Peter. Suddenly, Jesus stands in their midst. He eats with them as they discuss some things. And then Jesus said some amazing things to them. I'll pick it up again in Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. Listen to what he says. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. 
I don't, I don't always start with the Psalms when I'm studying prophecy, especially as related to Jesus, but clearly as stated in Luke 24, maybe I should. There are many categories of Psalms, and approximately 20 of the 150 that are recorded in the Bible are considered Messianic Psalms. Now, technically, what makes some songs Messianic is that they record events or give information, give information, excuse me, related to these things, the birth, the life, the death and resurrection of Christ, His glory, His priesthood, His kingship, and especially the return of Christ. So today, I would like for us to study Psalm 2. That's where we'll be. And this is considered to be the first Messianic Psalm. And based on what we just read in Luke 24, it might even have been personally taught by Jesus Himself, which to me is kind of a mind-blowing thought. So I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety, and then we'll begin to look at it individually in the verses. Psalm 2. This is out of the NASB. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There's a scholar named Franz Delich, and he covers a section on Psalms in a set, a set of commentaries called the Commentary on the Old Testament in ten volumes. And he labels Psalm 2 in the category of indirectly Messianic Psalms. And this is because it is written for a contemporary king, David. But it has its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that we call dual fulfillment when a prophecy is given with both an immediate and a future fulfillment. When it relates to Christ, we talk about messianic typology in which there is a type, in this case David, and an antitype who is Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment. You know, Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament seven times. And each time it's concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and not David. As we look at the Psalms, uh, this Psalm in particular in our Bible, you may have noticed that even though I've already alluded to David, no author is ascribed to it. However, Peter and John quote from this Psalm in Acts uh, chapter 4, verses 23 through 28. I'll go to that.
This is Peter and John. This is after they'd been taken before the council of religious rulers because they'd healed a lame man and they'd been proclaiming Christ, in particular, his resurrection. And when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, now look, these are the first verses, the first stanza from Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, verse 27 and 28, we actually get a, a, a Holy Spirit uh, interpretation of what those verses meant. Listen, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose and predestined to occur. So we learn then that David is actually the human psalmist here. Uh, and then we see that the additional rendition or interpretation of the stanza is given to us. It began in Christ's first coming and it surrounded his crucifixion and the gathering together of all the peoples. We saw both Jew and Gentile in that. But listen, it's more than that, this rejection that we see of God from all the people. When we look at the entirety of the Psalm, Psalm 2 as, we, as we're going to be going through, it's going to become apparent that what happened and what John and Peter were talking about was only the beginning of the world's rejection of God in Christ and that it's going to have its ultimate fulfillment at the end of the age, leading up to Christ's second coming. So this is a, indeed a remarkable psalm. Psalm 2, it speaks of Jesus. And in it, he, he is given three titles in it, and we see these uh, easily. The first is uh, anointed, the anointed, or his anointed. Now this is the same Hebrew word that we saw when we studied Daniel. It's in Daniel chapter 9, in two verses, both 25 and 26. And there it is translated... Messiah. Let me read that section from Daniel. This is in regard to the 70 weeks prophecy that the angel Gabriel gave to Daniel. It says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, here's the word, Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It, that is Jerusalem, will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Next verse. Then, after 62 weeks, the Messiah, there's that word, will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So that's the first title we see for Jesus. The second title is King, my King, from the, from the lips of God. It says in verse 6, the Lord God the Father calls Jesus my King. And this is consistent with the understanding of who the Messiah was to be, that he was destined to rule and to reign. But the most interesting title in this psalm is the third one, and it's found in verse 7, my son. Now, the Father God calls Jesus, or the Messiah, my son. So here in the Old Testament, this is a 3,000-year-old psalm of David. God Almighty reveals that he has a son. 
And this is quite interesting because in Islam, they totally reject the idea of God having a son. And yet, they do accept the Old Testament, mostly. But in particular, they accept the Psalms. They call them the Zabur. And they're specifically stated to be writings of God. So that's interesting. Now, I would tell you that this Psalm is beautifully laid out. It's in four sections, we'll see. I'm going to call them stanzas. And there are three verses each. And in each section, there appears to be a different speaker, okay? Or you might say that it comes from a different perspective. By the end of the psalm, we will have heard, we'll have heard from the world, we'll have heard from God the Father, from Jesus the Messiah, and from the psalmist himself, which is by extension the Holy Spirit. So let's begin looking at the individual verses. I'm going to read again Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So we already noted in, in Acts, we saw that this perspective that we are getting is from the world, and they have then this rhetorical question they put forth, that is put forth. Why are the nations in an uproar and devising? This image is really the uproar that they speak of is a kind of like an unruly mob. And I think the picture that we would see of the people's gathering is kind of like the stuff we saw in Washington, Seattle, that the Antifa, these anarchist groups. Total chaos. But we also have in here not only the people, but attention is shifted to the leaders themselves. We see both secular and religious leaders here. Now, I should have already pointed out that when we come to any of the Psalms, we need to remember that these are distinctly and inherently Jewish in their substance. And that is especially in regard to their context, their audience, their, and their understanding, as well as their interpretation. This word in here, nations, is sometimes translated heathen, and it refers specifically to Gentiles, i.e. non-Jews, whereas the word peoples, in the next line, is understood to mean the people of Israel, in other words, the Jews. Likewise, kings is representative of heads of secular government, secular governments, while rulers would be indicative of religious leaders. So what we have here then is the world, and especially those in positions of power, and they gather together, and they're in a rage, they're devising they're imagining and they're plotting something of a scheme. We might say that they're conspiring together. Some translations actually do say that. And what does, one, what does verse 1 say about their scheme or their plot? What is it called? It is a vain thing. It is a vain thing. What does vain mean? Empty. Not worth it. Hopeless. Futile. Ultimately, it is going to be deemed worthless and actually a silly waste of time. And who is the world plotting and raging against in verse 2? Again, the Lord, the Father, the Jehovah. That, that term we've looked at before, uh, Y-H-W-H, Lord, that's Jehovah. That's Yahweh. That's the Father. And also His anointed, who we see is Messiah. So let's understand that this first stanza 
then is representative of the views of the world, which actually gets its beginning at Christ's first coming. But we, we, we will see that it will be progressively increasing and leading up to Christ's second coming when he comes to set up his earthly kingdom. Well, let me ask this. What, what's motivating the people's uproar here? What is causing their leaders to conspire together? Rebellion. Rebellion. This is what they seek. Verse 3 gives that answer clearly. It says, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, I was a little surprised to see the NASB use these terms or these words, fetters and cords. Do you all know what fetters and cords are? Fetters. Let me do fetters, okay, because I had to look this up. Okay, these are, think leg, prisoner leg chains, okay, or leggings, all right, and they consist of a manacle, all right, which is that iron clamp that goes around the ankle, and then it's attached one to the other with chain links. That's what fetters are. A cord, of course, is a rope, but it's a multi-stranded, very strong rope used for tying or restraining. I also saw the, a synonym given for it, hangman's rope. So what are these images or symbols, fetters and cords? What do they represent to the people? You said bondage. They represent slavery, responsibility to authority maybe, morals, judgment. They see God as a binder, a bondage bringer, which is totally the opposite. This is kind of a spiritual suicide they're demonstrating here, but the world doesn't want what it views as restrictions. Even though God has given His moral laws in His Word, and it's for the benefit of all humanity, saved and unsaved alike. The world simply wants to do as it wishes, and it doesn't want to be questioned, and it does not want to feel guilt. It wants to be without accountability. I found a quotation from a, uh, an atheist in a book from 1983 called Algeny. The guy's name is Jer Jeremy Rifkin, and I think, it, I think it expresses the world's view pretty well, if I can read this without getting sick. It says, quote, We no longer feel ourselves to be a guest in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behavior conformed to a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. It is our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. Listen, we create the world. And because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behavior, for we are now the architects of the universe. I don't know if I can even read this next. We are responsible to nothing outside ourselves, for we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Wow. Pathetic nonsense. You have to ask yourself, what motivates an atheist to think that they have the authority to, to state this, to believe this? Is there some scientific discovery that's come about recently or some previously unknown knowledge that has made God irrelevant? Of course not. Of course not. Right. They just want to be autonomous. They're giving evidence of what was once aware, they were aware of at some time in their conscience. J. Vernon Romans McGee. Says he's a liar. Yeah. Say again. Romans 1 says he's a liar. Says he's a liar. We're going to look at Romans 1. Playing a game. Yeah. That's right. 
That is right. J. Vernon McGee always pointed out that man's problem with believing, submitting to God, is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem of the heart of humanity. Jeremiah the prophet described it well. He said, uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Some say wicked, which is probably more apropos. Who can understand it? So arrogant. Uh huh. I would agree. You know, that's what, uh, to me, I, and I see the same thing in uh, these alternate lifestyles having to have marriage affirmed when they don't want to fall under any, any authority of God in the first place, yet they hold up that institution that is God uh, originated. Yes. It's absolutely, and obviously. And so, but by declaring it, that doesn't make it true. Truly, there, there is create the universe, making these things, but um, it's that mass psychosis just so that you don't Yes, so they make themselves God. They don't want to uh, submit, right. But what a heavy burden that is Really. Who wants to be God? No. And they can't prove any of their positions. Right. It's not, it's not even honest to win them. They're honest, but they'd be agnostic. Correct. Correct. I don't know who said it. Someone did. Uh, an atheist can't find God for the same reason that a thief can't find a policeman. So, <laughs> so let's move on then in the next stanza. Next stanza, verses 4 to 6. Let me read those so we keep it in, in front. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have instilled my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So now we get the Father's reaction to this. Uh, all of this united opposition to him is laughably pathetic, right? The title for Lord here in verse 4 is Adonai, and uh, that is his special designation for rulership. It emphasizes his supreme authority and power to control and work out all things according to his will. But what a bizarre picture you've got here with the earth, with the world, and, and God. I, I found in the Believer's Bible commentary, I, I, the way it was stated was pretty good, I thought. It says, quote, he, is, he the Father, will mock their clenched fists and fiery slogans. Their boasts are the squeaks of a mouse against a lion. I thought that was good. But unfortunately for them, as we read in verse 5, God's, laugh, God's laughter quickly turns to anger, which totally frightens them. And I'm reminded immediately of, of Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, an excellent illustration... I recalled was uh, the reaction of the Jews uh, in Exodus uh, when uh, God was speaking to them at the giving of the law. Uh, it was at uh, Mount Sinai as they're standing by the mountain. That's in Exodus 20, 
verses 18 through 21. Standing right next to Zion, it says in verse 18, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. They backed up. When they, then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself. We will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. God is not even angry here, okay? He's merely speaking. Moses said to them, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. That would do it. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached in the thick cloud where God was. Okay. So although the world wants to throw off, cast off all accountability to God and be masters of their own destiny, God in his anger says otherwise. In verse 6, he reminds them that he already has his king, and it's Jesus, and that he will instill his king upon Zion in Israel. Now, Zion in a general sense means Jerusalem, but in the specific sense, it's understood to mean Mount Zion or the Temple Mount. Now, if we were to put everything we've read so far on a timeline, you know, about where, where do we fit in this in time, uh, where are we in this prophetic zone? I would say that in human history, in the world, we've not yet hit verse 5. I don't think God is speaking to us in his anger yet. All right, I would say that his response right now, if we were to call it wrath, would be more a wrath of abandonment, where God withdraws because of willful, willful ignorance on the part of his people, on the part of people, not his people. And this is Romans 1. So let's turn to Romans 1, verses 24 through 32. This speaks, this section of Romans speaks of the world after suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And I, I want you to just see if this doesn't sound a little like our present culture. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, listen, this is the third time God gave them over to a, and the words here are depraved mind. Re remember this section here because in King James it is interpret, it's translated reprobate mind, okay? To do those things which are not proper, being filled with, and listen to this evil litany that follows, all unrighteousness, wickedness, evil, Greed, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Does any of that sound familiar? Now, I would say also that although the, the fury of God is not yet on us as a nation, as a world, he may be removing his hand, his hand of protection and restraint 
it may be that societies and nations are beginning to reap what has been sown for so long. There's a principle stated well in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows. This will he also reap. Okay, moving on now to the third stanza. Verses 7 through 9. Christ the Messiah begins to speak. Let me just read verses 7 and 8 to start. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So Jesus speaks of a decree that the Father has. Is there a specific decree that Jesus might be alluding to or speaking of? I think there is, and I think it's the Davidic covenant that God established with the house of David. And this covenant is summed up well for us in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 16. This is the Lord speaking through Nathan the prophet to the king David. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So it states that David's lineage, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, his lineage, his kingdom and throne are to be established forever. The second half of verse 7 and on into verse 8 symbolically speaks then of Jesus receiving that kingdom, a kind of a coronation, if you will. Remember, if you, if you can, when we studied Daniel, we kind of got a picture of this uh, when uh, we read Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. This was prophesied to Daniel. Let me pick that up. This is Daniel speaking. He says, I kept, uh, Daniel 7, 13, 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. That's Christ. And he came up to the ancient of days. That's God the Father. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, we also read in verse 7 specifically of a day. That is the day that Jesus was begotten. Now, when did that occur? And let me just say, I, I believe Jesus has always been begotten, okay? But he's referring to something in reference to this decree. What, Rob? Right. He's always been the begotten son. So we're going to look at the word begotten for just a minute, but there's a specific application in these verses. Let's first look uh, at its meaning. Now, when we talk about begotten here, let me just say it has nothing to do with being created, and it has, it has nothing to do with having a beginning. But by way of a feeble analogy, let me just state it how it would look with men, Okay. A man or a sculptor might create a statue, right? But he, but he can only beget a child. And that's after that, the analogy falls apart. As believers, we are children of God, right? But our relationship is not that of being begotten. Ours is only by adoption. Let me read Ephesians 1, 1 through 4. This is Paul writing, and he says, Just as he, the Father, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, 
that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the intention of his will. So that's not the Lord's position with the Father. Begotten means to have the same essential nature and being of the Father. And only Jesus has that, is that, and has always been that. God's only begotten Son. But in verse 7, there's a specific day mentioned for Jesus being begotten in regard to God's decree. So, this begottenness that we're talking about here, we can find in Acts 13, verses 29 through 33. And what we'll see is that it is related to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Okay? Let me read that. Acts, Acts chapter 13, 29 through 33. This is Paul speaking of Christ in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised Jesus up. As it is also written in Second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So in a, in a sense, he was begotten from, from the dead on his, in his resurrection even though he always existed in the same relationship with the Lord. But we, we understand then that the open fulfillment of all this stuff that Jesus is talking about uh, in the second stanza, excuse me, in the third stanza, has not yet been fulfilled. It's still future. It's going, it's going to play out, uh, and it's waiting uh, for Christ to come again in, his second in, in the millennial kingdom on earth. And, and what we're going to see then is this great, establishing of the kingdoms or coronation. You know, one of my favorite scriptures is a Christmas, you know, related scripture. And I think it alludes to this very uh, kingship of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The prophet Isaiah states, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government and peace. Listen here, the Davidic covenant next. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I think that would be a beautiful sight. Next, Sue. Oh, great. Can't wait. Great. Next, in verse 9, there's a very serious statement made. Let me read it. It says, You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. The, the picture then that's presented is of Christ crushing man's earthly kingdoms when he returns. And this is also the thought brought out uh, from another passage in Daniel uh, when King Nebuchadnezzar's dream was being uh, interpreted by Daniel, and Daniel was relating back all the interpretations to him. Listen to Daniel chapter 2, verses 33 and 34. This is to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel speaking. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands. That's Jesus Christ. 
and it struck the statue. That was the great Gentile nations stacked up on top of each other in these different materials and irons. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all these kingdoms, were crushed all at the same time. And listen, they became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the winds carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone, Jesus, that struck the statue became a great mountain, king and kingdom, and filled the whole earth. Wow. So we might ask, gentle Jesus, why does he have to? Why does he break the earth's governments with a rod of iron? Because they're evil. Because he must, right? He must. The world is not demonstrated that would ever receive him. They're not, the world is not waiting for Christ to return. There is a, there's a verse we just studied last uh, Thursday night in, uh, in Revelations 1-7, and it shows the reaction of the world. It says, uh, in the King James, it says, you know, all eyes will see him. They will see that they have pierced him. He will come in the clouds. All kindreds will wail as he comes, will wail. Now, what is a wail? And I'm not talking about saving them. Uh, but a wail is, it's a, it's a moan. It's a moan of pain, grief, and anger. That's his reception from the world when he returns. And then finally, we come to the last stanza. Let me read those verses. That's 10 through 12. It says, Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord, that is Yahweh, with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here, these last verses, we're having the psalmist, and by extension, we know the Holy Spirit speaking and giving some pretty good advice. I think that in these three verses, as believers, we can hear a call. It's a call to repentance and it's a call to reconciliation. And this should tell us that now is not the time to be giving up. In fact, even though the warning in this passage is dire, there's some very good practical points that we should pick up on. The first is discernment, discernment. And in our day, it's highly regarded and much needed. As believers, we need discernment to distinguish the attractions of the world from the things that please God. As the days and times grow darker, listen, the pressures on churches will be ever-increasing. The push from the PC culture is to make God's Word less offensive and more acceptable to the unsaved. The ability to discern right from wrong is needed. You remember when we were just in Romans 1, I tell you that word, reprobate. So reprobate is an interesting word. It isn't not... Reprobate is not... Not, it's not choosing wrong over right. That's not what it is. It's the inability to distinguish wrong from right, okay? And the comparison I have seen before is made to someone with leprosy, with the disease leprosy, because there is a, a diminution, a degeneration of peripheral nerves, especially hands, feet, and they can't feel heat, for instance. And so they're constantly being burned or burning themselves. And this is kind of what happens with a seared conscience of a reprobate person. It's a very sad place to be in. But you saw it wasn't after God, it was only until God gave them over three times that they ended up in that state. 
The second point I see in this last stanza is that the Lord Jesus must be, must be in his rightful place in our lives. And that's by our submitting, submitting to his will. To do homage to the Son is to give him honor, respect, and reverence. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of kings. He is our creator and our redeemer. And despite living in a world that hates and rejects him, he must be the center of all things and should be our life, our very life. Finally, the last point I'll lift up is in the, the last verse. And I think that last verse in the, in the psalm is here to give us hope. We're not to give up. And no matter what's happening in this crazy world around us, we should take comfort because it has all been foretold. We're reading about it right now. And uh, as believers, we're gonna, we have a glorious future with the one who will never forsake or leave us. God, even right now, is preparing that kingdom for us. And I'm pretty sure we'll not be disappointed. Any comments? Absolutely. He's going back up there, and he's saying, you guys think you're being wrathful in your revenge and taking off your feathers and your cords, but don't be angry and perishing away, because ultimately, um, wrath belongs to the Lord, and homage belongs to the Lord, and he's still reaching out and saying, you can still return and come to me. That's absolutely correct, and that is God's grace, and that's why I say he hasn't opened. He hasn't come at us in his wrath and fury yet. We are still in a period of grace. We can still come to him, even these in the first stanza. Jeff. When you're talking about reprobates, you know, thinking of uh, Pharaoh and how Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh mm -hmm. hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Right. And then toward the end, God hardened his heart. Right. Pharaoh's already hardened heart. God's like, okay, at this point, you're, you're not coming back to me. Right. Right. He's not going to go, well, let's not worry about that guy. So we're talking about there, the fullness of the Gentiles. There's a yeah. point where that happens. Yeah. The last person believes and enters the church. Yeah. That's it. You know, on, on Pharaoh, I was always taught that it has to do with the substance of the heart, that the same sun that shines on, mac, on wax will melt wax, but on clay it will harden it into a rock. Right. You know, and it has to do with the, the person, yeah. not with God. Any others? You know, Jack, it's almost like if you look back at Psalm 1, it's sort of the application and commentary on what Psalm 3 ends up with. You know, that's what we can always go out day and night, so we will not be like the wicked. Absolutely. The whole book of Psalms is divided up into these different sections, and it just flows with the Bible itself in a very precise way. There's no accidental things going on anywhere in the Word of God. It's all laid out perfectly as he wanted it. Right. And that's, I was trying to bring that out. It's right. It's 
Absolutely. That's right. You know, the word, I was trying to bring out the point that it shifts from the people to the rulers yeah. uh, in the next verse. Only be saved by being 